If you are just getting started with the NGSS and 3D teaching, I want to invite you to check out Bring Wonder Back, an on-demand video series designed to help you understand why moving through the textbook and teaching topics is actually crushing your students' curiosity and what you can do instead. It's going to help you shift the work of learning where it belongs by building your understanding of explorations and discovery-based teaching practices. And finally, I'm going to help you take the first steps toward transforming your students into scientists through 3D learning, which is really what the NGS is all about. You can access this video series at iExploreScience/wonder and get ready to bring wonder engagement and a love for learning back to your science class. All right, to the show. Welcome to the Teaching Science in 3D podcast. My name is Nicole Van Tassel. And I'm Erin Sadler. And we are two science teachers dedicated to helping you cut through the confusion and meet the intent of the NGSS so you can master all three dimensions. The NGSS can seem totally overwhelming, but implementing these standards doesn't need to be. Hey guys, this is Nicole Van Tassel with iExplore Science, and I'm with Erin Sadler from Sadler Science. And we are going to be talking about anchoring phenomena today. So thank you for joining us for this episode of the Teaching Science in 3D podcast. We're excited to dive into phenomena and in particular anchoring phenomena. So let's start by talking about what the purpose of anchoring phenomena is, because I feel like a lot of people kind of miss the point on that, that they're, um, they're not quite sure even what the purpose is. That's. A really good point. So I, what would you like, why don't you go first? What do you think the per? what would you say the purpose is or how would you describe it? Um, I think that anchoring phenomena is the thing that's kind of like the glue that holds your lesson sequence together. It's something that you refer back to over and over again. And it's what students are trying to figure out throughout the lesson sequence. I like that description of it as glue. I think that's, that's really cool. Cause it is true. It's not just at the beginning. It is used in your, you, you come back to it throughout the unit. Um, I like to think of that anchoring phenomena as a spark as well. Like it, for me, I always just think of it as this like spark experience that gets their, the questions going, it gets them curious. It engages them in everything that is, you know, going to follow. So I like to think about, of it as kind of what's sparking it all. Definitely. And I also, I think that it's important that it, it does have that like curiosity component because hopefully it's you, you're getting a bunch of student questions from that phenomenon and that's being incorporated in your storyline. Yes. Yeah. Like that's totally the point is that we are using it to spark those questions. So now all of the content that you wanted to teach anyway is now really a response to what the students were wondering about. You know, like in our classroom, we, we can't make our students wonder about things, but if we provide them with this phenomena, with this spark, and then they, then they wonder about it. And then it's easy to, you know, glide into, okay, so now we're learning about this today, or now we're going to answer your question about this today. So it, 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 it makes it really relevant and, and turns all of your, maybe what you had planned to do into a response to your students instead of you putting it on your students, if that makes sense. 
Yeah. And we talked about that in season two. So I will link to that in the show notes, like how to use student questions to drive your storyline. So that's an important piece of this. And I will link to that again. Awesome. Yes. Go listen to those, those oldies, but goodies. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so we said it, it sparks those student questions. It's the glue that's really holding all of your content together. It's ma- it is making your use your unit cohesive so that it doesn't feel like you're just jumping from this topic to that topic to that topic. And I've you know I've always said we see the connections between our topics and between our lessons and between our our content, but our students don't always see those connections. So the anchor, like you said, it really glues it together. It holds it all together. And it allows students to see how what they learn in the lesson on Monday relates to what they learn in the lesson on Friday, because they all are helping to explain that phenomenon. And, and also how to make it applicable to something in the real world, that it's not just information that we're trying to give them. It actually has a practical application. Yes. So you don't have to answer like, why are we learning this? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um, what are some of the like mistakes or misunderstandings? And I feel like we actually kind of touched on a couple of them, but, uh, that you have seen and maybe even done, like I, there's a lot of these that I've done that we've kind of talked about, um, when it comes to like using anchors and choosing anchors and all that. I think one of the most common ones that I see is just using this anchoring phenomenon as a hook and then kind of forgetting about it. You never go back to it again. It's like, you know, something, it's just the spark and nothing else. Um, And it's, you know, used to engage students and then it kind of dies there. Yeah. I was totally guilty of that when I first started. Um, I've, I've, you know, shared before that phenomena was kind of one of the last things I got kind of my head around uh, with using 3D instruction. And I always say it should have been the first thing. And I was totally, you know, wrong in doing that. But I was, yeah, so guilty of just having it at the beginning of my lessons in my units and then not really returning to it. So it kind of like rooted the like coming content in a real world situation. But obviously if a student hasn't seen that situation three weeks later, uh, it's not relevant anymore. So yeah, I, um, I was guilty of like making it like bookends, you know, like at the beginning of the end and that's it. And then just, yeah it disappeared and then nothing in the middle. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was me too. Um, I think, uh, and actually I have a blog post about some mistakes with anchors. So I'll link that in the show notes as well. Um, and, and one of mine was, was using as the hook. Another mistake that I made, I thought it, I, uh, when I was getting started with anchors, I thought the anchor was the question. So it's funny. Um, I mean, this made me think of the blog post because when I wrote the blog post originally and I was giving some examples of anchors, I wrote them as questions. And then I realized, and I had to go back and edit the blog post that it's not the question. It's the thing that's sparking the question. So, you, you know, when you're planning and when you're choosing your anchor, you definitely have the questions in mind, like that you want your students to ask and you have the questions you want the anchor to like, spark or go towards, but the, the anchor isn't the question. It's not this essential question your unit is answering. It's the thing that makes students think of the question. And that was one thing that I did not um, understand when I first started with anchors. Absolutely. We, um, I did a workshop uh, probably two or three years ago and they gave us a 
like a stack of potential phenomena and they you know asked us like what's is this phenomena or not and one of the things they included was questions and it was a big debate as to whether or not that was actually a phenomenon so yeah yeah oh that's interesting what did the did the presenters say that it wasn't or did they leave it yeah, open they or? It, that it wasn't and that oh, it, okay. yeah good <laughs> um yeah but that is one thing that I I didn't realize like at first right I didn't always keep front and center in my in my mind um what are some other mistakes that you've seen with anchors or made um I I think another one is using um novelty rather than relevance so having it be some kind of like obscure but really cool strange thing that happens but that you would never actually experience in the real world yes someone was talking one time about this weird and physics isn't my area of expertise so i'm not the greatest in thinking of physics phenomena but just this like weird thing about something sticking to a chalkboard or not sticking to a chalkboard or something i don't know but basically they like throw something at a chalkboard and something weird and kind of cool happens and they want to use that as phenomena and i mean technically it's a phenomenon it's something that happens but is it really relevant like not not really so, after you get past that one day of wow factor, like, oh, that was weird and that was cool. It's not really, it doesn't have that relevance or that emotion that our our human brains need to stay engaged with something. You know, we can be super engaged in things that we, that either apply to our lives or like what we value in the world or that spark our emotions. Like we are really engaged in this stranger story because we can relate to those emotions or whatever. When like novelty, I mean, even novelty for like dogs wears off in a couple of days, you know? Yeah. So when we rely on novelty to keep our students engaged through an, an entire like six week unit or storyline, it's just not like reliable. Yeah. I always try to think about like, what is my daughter going to be curious about? Like, what are those little tiny things that she's asking me questions about? Like when we're out in the neighborhood, to, like taking a walk or something like that, those usually make pretty good phenomena. Yes. I think that is one thing to like, be aware of too, that as teachers, um, we, we know so much that sometimes things don't seem like, like we wouldn't wonder about it because we already know the answer. So it can be a challenge, but also to remember that sometimes simple things can be really interesting and curious and, and make our students curious um, because they don't have all of those answers. So if you can frame it in a way that again, makes it relevant or ties into their emotions or something like that, something really simple could be a phenomenon, um, that really sparks some really great learning. Even if we might look at it and be like, that doesn't make me curious at all. You know, we're adults, we have a whole lot more life experience and a whole lot more science knowledge in our brains. So thinking it from, from that student perspective is really, really important. It, absolutely. And also in that like third through fifth grade band, I feel like a lot of it should just be like things that students are experiencing, like on the playground and stuff like that. And because our middle school students are necessarily having that experience in upper elementary, sometimes you really need to go back and look at that very basic phenomena. That's true. That is a really good point. Thinking about your grade level of students and how phenomena would be different like totally on the same, you know, looking at like my young child going to be in kindergarten phenomena for her would be literally stuff that 
like you said, go outside and experience and touch the ground feels warmer here. We melt cream cone in the sun today, like whatever, you know, those kind of things. Um, and how it does start to change as you get, you know, older and you can get a little bit more abstract with it. Um, and I think something that's really interesting and that I have really stressed in my, um, like my cohorts program, as we've talked about phenomena and our instruction and all of that, um, our middle and high school students, I mean, adolescence is this time where we're like trying to figure out our place in the world. And so I think bringing in those social aspects can really heighten engagement. So instead of just a, you know, evaporating water kind of situation outdoors, bringing in like, why does evaporating water matter in the world? Well, these people don't have any water because of it. Um, You know, so like those societal problems and things I think can add a lot of authentic engagement for your students because they want to do things that matter in the world and they want to be a part of finding solutions to these problems or, or just playing those grown up roles of here's the real world. And this is, you know, what I'm moving into. Um, Or again, even just like social dynamics among their peers and things like that. Just, just thinking about just development, the development level of your students and what is valuable to them, what is, is important to them at that age level can really make a difference too in the phenomena you choose and how effective it is. I also was listening to something, I think on NPR or something like that, about how students like, you know, school age kids right now are really interested in environmental phenomena and that they're noticing that, um, that that is generally a really good engagement point with our students that they care about it more than any other group has before. So that's a really nice way to tie in. Um, First of all, I just like hearing that from like a, I don't know, like green person kind of perspective. (laughs) Um, But like, I think that totally makes sense. I didn't actually like science until I took an environment. I mean, I mean, I, I liked science when I was in elementary school. I didn't like science in, in middle and high school. Um, I didn't feel like it was relevant. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was like stuff that people didn't allow. And that didn't interest me. Um, But then when I got to college and I took some environmental science courses and it was like the cross section of science stuff and ecosystems and all the natural world stuff I liked with all of the like relevancy of social problems and social justice and, and just keeping our world and sustainability and all like, that was what really hooked me into science. And I obviously like a lot more topics now, but that's what got me back into science was, was that kind of those environmental problems and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that speaks to one of the other common mistakes that we see. And that is thinking that a demo is an anchoring phenomenon. And we talked about, talked about this a couple of episodes ago, but a demo just doesn't have the same depth as something like an environmental problem. So there's only yeah. you know so many questions that you can ask about a demo and where if you bring in something like, you know, for example, I live near Sacramento and we have the fifth worst air quality in the United States. So like, why is that happening? What's contributing to this? And, you know, we can bring in all kinds of things about um, like the topography of the area and all that kind of stuff that's contributing to this phenomenon. Yeah, that's, that's neat. Yeah. Um, I I think I just want to like note that a demo might be a really good investigative level phenomenon. So like, you know, after when you're getting into your storyline, you're getting into your explanation explorations and 
you know, your students are observing something happening to collect data and make those observations and ask some questions about that smaller level. Um, but we're right now, we're obviously talking about anchors. So that's why it's not going to really drive a demo probably isn't going to drive your entire unit, uh, but it could be used later on at some point, you know, effectively. Absolutely. Um, another thing that we wanted to talk about is what anchors actually look like and where we can find them. I like to think about anchors as experiences. So, um, and I think about them as experiences as in like your students don't necessarily have to go out and experience a tornado, but they can be engaged in a few different activities that give them some experience of that. So maybe it's watching a video of tornado chasers that have, that show a tornado developing. Maybe it is then like also looking at data. Maybe it is, um, looking at some images of like damage or maps of, uh, showing, I don't know, like the data or whatever. So it's not, it doesn't necessarily have to just be like one thing, I guess is what I'm thinking. It can just be this little like collection, even like I've been exploring lately, like children using some children's books to add in that storytelling aspect and that em- like emotional, social, um, like rooting it in, in that relevance and that emotion. Um, so it can like be this cluster of activities that's all kind of related to, you know, I mean, that, that can be your anchor, I guess, is, is kind of where I'm, I'm thinking and going with this, but it, but it does need to be specific. Yeah. So, so the, the anchor could be something like a tornado that occurred in a specific area, but then you can bring in all of these different pieces and really help them experience what that would be like. And yeah also makes it so that you don't have to have them experience the anchor once you can bring in those pieces kind of along your storyline. So add in another piece here and another piece, you know, like in a couple of days, Yes, we're continuing to experience that. Yes. And then, and they, it allows those questions to like grow, you know, initially they have a couple questions, they go through some like activities to explore and sort of answering those questions. And then you add that extra layer of your anchor phenomena and it, and it, they combine it with what they know and they're asking more questions and it's just driving that forward. So, so I, I, I like to think about like kind of as an experience. And like you said, it can totally be spaced out throughout your unit. So, so that you're adding depth as you're going. Absolutely. Uh, where do you like to find phenomena? Where do you look for phenomena? I like, I know that there's those phenomena websites and things like that. I honestly have not personally, I never find anything that feels like just right for me. Um, when I go like browse those websites, a lot of them, I, I feel like, I don't know. I, I never, what I like to do is think of those real world problems or issues. Sometimes I do like to look at science news websites about like recent research that was released or, um, you know, stuff like that. If, if it's a topic I'm not familiar with, like usually if it's a topic I'm familiar with our standard, you know, content ideas I'm familiar with, I can kind of just go from my own knowledge of like these environmental problems or these issues or um, this thing that happened. But a lot of times, again, what news science websites and things like that are really, are really good for that. Um, but I don't really like those like phenomena. I just, I don't find them helpful for me for <laughs> anchor phenomena. I feel like they are better investigative level phenomena because they yeah. don't have the relevance to your specific students. So yes. Yeah. I, I like to look at things like, I don't know, like 
USGS maps or something like that, because then I can look at something specific to my area or even like, I would say local Facebook groups and see what people are concerned about. Like, um, yeah, yeah. We I, um, oh, okay. <laughs> I was just gonna say, so I, um, actually, and if you, I'm going to put the link in the episode to get on like the wait list for this, but I'm going to be, I'm creating a free resource, uh, for May. It'll be released in May. Um, that's anchor activity. And so I was kind of bouncing back and forth between a couple of different ideas. Um, but I, and obviously I have the freedom to choose my anchor and then choose the standards that align to it. And obviously not all teachers do that, but what I would say, you know, if you're looking at your standards first, you would kind of look at, identify the couple standards that you might want to tie in together. And but basically what I'm doing is I'm looking at, um, I, I just think of stuff that's relevant to me. So I knew I wanted to do something like life science and I knew I wanted to do something that would kind of get students be like hands-on, um, but potentially related to outside kind of things, you know, spraying outside. I don't know. Things are like coming back to life here in Pennsylvania. So it sounded, so I was looking at like the relationship between pollinators. So like that standard on animal adaptations and plant adaptations was one area I was looking at. The other area I was looking at was like nutrient cycling, because again, everything's starting to grow. Um, so those two areas though, I basically think of like a big topic first, like bees or composting. And then from there I have, okay, this general thing. Now I'm going to drill down to find that specific event or that specific experience. So that's where I like had this big idea of composting. Now I'm going to go to the science news website and type in like composting or, and see like what comes up, you know, maybe there is some weird new insect that they found out can do this or that, or, um, Maybe they just had a, I don't know, I just read something about the number, uh, the amount of food that's wasted every year. Maybe that can be my phenomenon, you know, um, how much food was race wasted in 2020. Um, or with like bees, I again read like a weird gut bacteria. They're looking at adding gut bacteria into the bees that will kill the mites. So then that goes into this ecosystem relationships and interactions because you have the parasitism and then you have the mutualism and and all that so I kind of think of like here's my standard here's like the big topic the science topic here's a real world thing example and Aaron I'm like totally talking with my hands nobody can see this but it's okay and um (laughs) side note whenever I talk with my hands I get way more steps on my Fitbit so my husband the other day was like you're not even walking and you're getting steps I'm like it's okay I still beat you um Anyways, and then I drill down to like a specific event. So that's kind of like my process of how I find a phenomena. I don't know. What do you do? (laughs) So I was talking about local Facebook groups and it sounds really silly, but I've actually gotten a few really good um, anchoring phenomena for my specific students because I live like I'm a four minute drive from my school. So a couple of things that we've had in the last couple of years is Um, I live really close to a river, so we're always concerned about erosion and flooding and all of that kind of stuff. Um, Right now, we're having this, like, massive boom of coyotes locally, and, you know, like, when I go walk my dog, there'll be, like, a coyote running down the street, so, and those are the kinds of things that come up that people are concerned about in those groups, and it's really easy to bring that back into the classroom. And, you know, potentially the student's parents have been talking about the same kind of a thing and, you know, it's come up at home and then it makes it really relevant to those students. Yeah. 
I love that. And it's because it's specific to your students. So I guess I want to caveat my like process at, at one point when you nail down, you still have to find a way to connect it back to your students. So connecting it back to, I don't know, their food waste or where they have seen it or like how it emotionally ties to them or whatever, or like what they're growing or if they like fruit and vegetables and why they need bees because of that. Um, but yeah, like you totally nailed it on the head that it's really important that our anger actually connects to our students and not just the general science topics. Absolutely. So I really like your Facebook group idea. That's super clever. Yeah. yeah. It's a good one. Um, do we have anything else? Like are we talked about, yeah, where we find it and um, what it looks like. What does it like look like to, for you? What kind of thing? We touched a little bit. I talked about my like experience analogy or explanation or whatever. Um, sometimes I just present it as like a graph or a map or, you know, some kind of, I think we often forget about using data as anchoring phenomena, but students aren't super excited about that. So if I'm, you know, just using, you know, like some kind of graph or something like that, then I also need to tie in, you know, something with a more emotional component. So maybe I'll, you know, play like a short video or something like that. So just kind of pairing those things up to make it, make it not just relate to like create questions, but also, um, also kind of pull in that emotion. Yes, I totally agree. That's, um, yeah, exactly. I think there can be like those multiple components. Um, and I think there's also obviously a level of discussion too, you know, like it's, it's the act, like a big part of the activity is just the talking about the activity and, and relating it back to where they've seen it, what they think about it, what they know about it, what questions they have about it, all of those kind of things as well. Um, so I think, your, your, I mean, yeah, exactly what we said. It might be a story and data. It might be a video and images. It might be, um, and then all, all of the discussion that happened that stems from that. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So I'm so glad you guys are joined us for this episode. Um, I, I don't have anything else other than I want to invite you to check out the Be Curious Community cohorts that are currently enrolling. Um, this is for middle school science teachers. I'll put the link in the uh, in the show notes. And th- so this is really for middle school science teachers who are ready to fully dive into this phenomenon-based learning. Like you want to know, how do I put this in action in my classroom right now? How can I get going with it in my curriculum? How can I change the way I think about my curriculum and my instruction so that I'm really creating this like student-owned science experience where they are, you're building your units on phenomena and they're asking the questions and they are figuring out the questions and they're directing your next steps. And you are really, kind of co-creating your classroom experience with your students. Um, so that, that cohort program is enrolling right now. Again, it's limited to six teachers. I don't know how many spots are filled right now. I totally encourage you to have your district um, fund your program and support your progress here because really we want our administrators to be on board with this new different um, and sometimes different, depends on what you're already doing, but this different way of teaching and approaching science learning. So I really, you know, encourage you to get your district to support you in this. If you have any questions, please reach out to me um, on Instagram, on Facebook. You can send me an email. Um, You can also contact me through my website. But again, the cohorts are now open for enrollment, limited to six teachers, middle school teachers who are just totally ready for this like student-owned science, phenomenon-based 3D experience, and are just 
want to put it into action in their and, and get ready to put it into action in their classroom, like literally the end of the school year and then into um, obviously into the fall. So please reach out if you have any questions about that. And other than that, I don't have anything going on. Do you got anything, Erin? Nope. That sounds great. That sounds really cool. I'm looking forward to hearing about that. I'm, I'm super excited. This will be round two of the cohorts. So we um just finishing up round one as we are recording this. And it's been a really good experience. And we're already like kind of talking about some sort of like ongoing thing. One of the teachers was like, I'm really sad that we're almost done. And I was like, I'm really glad you're saying that. <laughs> but um, so we're trying to figure out maybe like an ongoing um, kind of thing. But it's just been really like nice to get to know. I don't know, just the, you know, I've worked, obviously, I've been working with teachers for the last couple of years, but just to really get to know them because we're meeting every single week and we're talking about what's going on in their classroom and talking about their lessons and collaborating. And I don't know, it's just a nice like experience. So it's been fun for me too. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. If you love the podcast, here are a few ways to connect. Send in your questions to our website at teachingscienceinn3d.com slash questions. You can also follow us on Instagram at teachingscience underscore in3d and send us a question there. Also, if you could rate and review the podcast, that would be so helpful. Thanks again for listening. Making sure that your lessons are three-dimensional isn't always easy. While you don't need to include all three dimensions every single day, you do want to make sure that each dimension is regularly addressed. I developed a really simple 3D planner to help keep me focused. It helps me track which pieces I'm using in my daily lesson plans. It only takes me five minutes to fill out, and it helps me notice patterns in my own lesson planning. For example, when I first started using it, I noticed I wasn't including the cross-cutting concepts as often as I thought I was. Just by recognizing this, I was able to focus on this one piece and improve my lessons. Right now, you can grab the same template that I use for my own planning for free. Go to sadlerscience.com slash 3D planner to grab yours. That's sadlerscience.com slash 3D planner.